Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Marian Tupi and I'm the Assistant Director of the Project on Global Economic Liberty here at the Cato Institute. In uh, 1989, communism collapsed in Central Europe. Later, it collapsed throughout the rest of the Soviet Empire. There was much optimism in the air as uh, people had thrown off the shackles of communist central planning and of uh, political oppression and had opted for liberal market democracy. Yet not all countries have succeeded equally. Let me give you an example. Um, Estonia, between 1995 and 2004, um, Estonian uh, GDP per capita has risen by an incredible 95%. The the country has been growing at 6.7% per annum. In contrast, uh, other countries, especially further east, have not done so well. One can look at uh, Ukraine. One can look, of course, at... uh, Um, Georgia, some of the countries uh, have not attempted any reform at all. Uh, Look at Belarus. And um, 17 years after the collapse of communism in Central Europe, 15 years after the collapse of communism in the rest of the Soviet Empire, um, we are very privileged to see a new book come out on uh, the economic transformation in uh, Central and Eastern Europe. And it's a book by Oleg Oleg Havrilishin, Divergent Paths in Post-Communist Transformation, Capitalism for All or Capitalism for the Few. Allow me to begin by uh, quoting from uh, Oleg's book. In less than 20 years since the collapse of communism in Europe, yet from the perspective of the early 21st century, the events triggered by the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 seem much more distant. Even for those directly involved, it can be hard to recall what life was like in the centrally planned economies and, correspondingly, easy to overlook the scale of the challenge that faced those charged with transforming those countries into market economies. This is at least in part because so much has been achieved so fast. Many of the countries crippled by economic policies that wasted resources on a huge scale, stifled growth, and held down living standards are now in the European Union. The the transformation of many parts of the former Soviet empire has been remarkable. Turning century-run economies into well-functioning market economies that fosters uh, competition and growth has has never before been attempted. The early years of the process were punctuated by intense debates among economists and policymakers about the best way to achieve the desired objective. In particular, there were arguments about whether speed or caution would be more effective route. Well, in this book, Oleg Havrilishin concludes that uh, the Big Bang approach to economic reform has been more successful than uh, the more gradualist approach uh, that uh, was adopted by some of the former communist countries. He also concludes that countries which adopted more, uh, uh, more advanced economic reforms and had the uh, opportunity to join the European Union sometime uh, in the future have done much better than countries that did not have that opportunity. And so I'm very pleased to welcome here, uh, welcome Oleg Havrilishin to the Cato Institute today. Oleg was born in uh, Ukraine, and his parents uh, fled from communists, uh, first to Brazil and then to Canada. 
He's received his Bachelor of Arts uh, in economics at uh, Queen's University and PhD in economics uh, from uh, MIT. Uh, he's had an academic career for 20 years, first at Queen's University and then at Georgetown University. Washington. George Washington. I apologize. How could I ever make a mistake like that? <laughs> he specialized in uh, trade and development and uh, has worked on many consulting assignments uh, for the World Bank and later for the IMF. Uh, well, his uh, career, I could go on and on, but um, let me just say that he has recently um, uh, he has recently retired from the IMF and uh, went to the University of Toronto, where he is uh, currently teaching. Ladies and gentlemen, please let me welcome Oleg Havrilishin. Well, thank you very much, uh, Marian, for this uh, very pleasant to listen to introduction. Uh, whenever I do occasionally give a presentation and uh, I'm introduced, I have to listen twice to realize, uh, is this me or not? So it's very nice of you, uh, Marianne. And thank you very much for the opportunity to address uh, the members of the Cato Institute and uh, uh, others present, uh, giving you my views of what has happened in the last 15 years, why it happened the way it did, and what next. Let me motivate a, the philosophical uh, issue that comes at the very end of my talk with a citation at the beginning that I will read from the New York Times op-ed of October 30, 2003 by Leon Aaron, Crime and Punishment for Capitalists. Uh, and I cite a couple of sentences. Uh, that there is in Russia a battle between two economic cultures. He's writing about the UCOS, the beginning of the UCOS affair. A uh, battle between two economic cultures, uh, the, on the one side, the great power statists versus the liberal oligarchic. I find the phrase liberal oligarchic to be an absolute oxymoron, and I will try to explain why. Uh, I quote one more sentence. The last sentence in Aaron's statement, the oligarchs can help to advance the cause of Russian democracy. I don't take umbrage of that because I'm Ukrainian and not Russian, but I do take an opposing view to that, and I will try to explain through a political economy model why that is, in fact, absolutely the opposite of what one should conclude about oligarchic regimes. Well, uh, this is just a nice picture of the uh, cover of uh, my book, which is a display copy is available. And for those of you don't, who don't mind extortionate capitalists like Paul Grave Macmillan, they'll kill me for this, uh, charging hugely uh, ridiculous prices at the first run, uh, there are order forms with a discount for conference purposes. I'm hoping that that'll be over in six, 12 months and they'll come down to uh, more affordable prices. What am I going to talk about today? Uh, five uh, subsections very briefly. What was the expectation like in 1989? What are the outcomes that we can see 15 years later? Why do we see the different outcomes? And by the way, just as a uh, prelude, a fundamental, simple way of seeing what I see is group one of countries comes out as liberal democracies, and liberal applies to both the polity and the economy. 
uh, roughly speaking at least, versus Group 2 oligarchic or what has come to be known sometimes as captured states in the new political science literature. Then I will talk a little bit about the prospects for transition being completed in these captured states uh, and then, uh, if necessary, a bit of summing up. And Marion will help me by reminding me how much uh, time I have left, I hope, so that I can uh, skip a few of these uh, slides. This slideshow will be available on uh, Cato website in uh, due time, I am told. So some of these things I will go through very quickly uh, and skip them. They can be picked up later. Uh, at the beginning, late 80s, early 90s, the expectations were started with huge euphoria and optimism. These enslaved people have been freed. Uh, it was expected that there would be some social pain, but everybody thought uh, that even though there are some winners and some losers at the beginning, that everybody would uh, be better off in a short period of time. So it was more euphoric than realistic. The issues, the key issues that were debated was whether you go fast or slow moving to the market. Uh, what do you do first? What is the sequence? Do you privatize first? Do you set up regulations of uh, monopolies first? Do you liberalize prices first? Do you liberalize foreign trade first? This, that, and the other. And a very important uh, debate uh, had to do with how to mitigate the adjustment costs of any social pain because you had to get rid of all of these highly inefficient factories with huge numbers of uh, inefficient uh, workers. Uh, so there's going to be pain. So the years of euphoria... 89-92 are nicely represented by this old East German Trabant uh, in the notion that if you just dump it, that uh, capitalism will blossom. Guess what? Many of these Trabants have been pulled out of uh, these, uh, these dumps, and capitalism has blossomed. There's an outfit in Poland called crazyguys.com that organizes nostalgia trips around the country to see old Soviet-style architecture, this, that, and the other, driving in an old Trabant. So capitalism did blossom for a few, even uh, in a way that was unexpected. Very quickly, the euphoria was worn thin, and what you had, as represented in this Izvestia uh, cartoon, that reforms just lead to uh, worse and worse uh, material conditions, uh, these uh, open uh, sardine cans. Uh, these were years of despair. A very important point to note here, this is, this is serious business, because the popular perception got rooted very early and remains to the present day, not only amongst the populace, but amongst a lot of academics, that reforms cause pain. I will try to show later that that, in fact, is not necessarily true. Uh, then there was the role of the IMF, as here. The uh, sign says, uh, in Russian, collective farm named after the third tranche of the International Monetary Fund. So there was hope that uh, these uh, pain of reforms would be uh, salvaged and uh, overcome by international uh, support. I want to talk a little bit more seriously about what I think is the uh, perhaps the simple, most syn synthetic statement of the debates in the early uh, period, the Big Bang versus gradualism debate. The arguments for gradual reforms were that you need to allow time to create industries and jobs as the old ones were eliminated and thereby reduce social pain. Not 
throw everybody out of these uh, dinosaur factories and hope that capitalism will, will pick them up, but go slowly. The most important recommendation of this school of thought, uh, represented by Gerard Roland, for example, is to put in place market institutions before putting fully in place the liberalization of, uh, of markets. The Big Bang argument was that you needed to change the incentives quickly to close the rent-seeking opportunities and lobbying by the existing uh, bureaucracy of red directors and to prevent opponents of reform for delay to delay process for uh, their own interests. By the way, this is not new. You go back and read Ann Krieger and rent-seeking and liberalization of trade in Latin America and elsewhere, this is a fundamental notion. You've got to move quickly enough, otherwise you'll get opposition to reform. So I don't claim uh, novelty here. There's an important parallel debate in the political science literature about whether you could have democratization and economic liberalization at the same time. I simplify, of course. Um, uh, uh, Professor Przeworski of Chicago will not uh, think that uh, this is necessarily his view. Uh, market reforms, because they cause pain, this school of thought of Przeworski's uh, said, will, in a demo democracy, mean that in the next elections, the reformists are thrown out and back come the, what I say, the, the renamed communists, because most communists switch to some kind of a centrist socialist party. And then they will reverse the reforms. Uh, just to stay in Poland, uh, or at least with Polish, I'm sorry, with Polish uh, intellectuals, uh, Balcerowicz, uh, Lasek Balcerowicz of Poland, uh, argued uh, that in fact the two were uh, compatible in the sense that the democratization provided a honeymoon period where everybody agreed we want to do something different, and this is the time to take the historical opportunity to move from communist, communism to liberalism and markets and, 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 and policies uh, as soon as possible. A uh, political scientist by the name of Valerie Bunce has given this, I think, a nice name, the dual liberal vision, liberal economy, liberal polity. So that was the debate. How about the outcomes? Well, first, before we talk about the outcomes, there's a problem of how to measure. When you're moving a whole regime, a society, from a communist, central plan, socialist, I mean, you've got not just economics and politics, you've got attitudinal, Weltanschauung issues, this, that, and the other. You're moving into a completely different mindset, to a completely different set of institutions and rules. How do you measure outcomes? Well, there are many different ways. You can measure economic performance after a certain period of time. You can measure, uh, have some measures of degree of democracy and how well democracy, uh, real liberal democracy is evolving. You can measure poverty and income distribution. You can measure social indicators of direct sort, life uh, expectancy, uh, health indicators, infant mortality. You can define, if not measure, what political scientists might uh, describe as the typology of the regime. Is it autocratic? Is it something in between? And so forth. Uh, you can measure things like the formation of vested interests, which I call here the formation of oligarchs. Uh, there are many different sources for measuring these things, so we do have some quantitative grip on this. I don't want to overstate the, the extent to which you can do these things in, in hard econometrics, and any econometrics I do, no econometrician would consider anything but very, very soft first-year econometrics. Uh, but you are, there are quantitative indicators. 
how far has the uh, the regime or the the economy moved towards being a market type economy? Has actually measured quantitatively year by year since about 1991 by the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and they've got this thing called the uh, Transition Progress Indicator. Economic performance, of course, you've got GDP growth, you've got inflation, you've got foreign direct investment, and perhaps others. Social indicators or social well-being. Uh, well, we can turn to all sorts of indicators of poverty, income distribution, literacy, health, and the overall so-called human development index of the UNDP. Degree of democracy, well, I won't get into that, but there are many institutions in, uh, in, in, in this city, uh, just up the street a little bit, uh, that do regular measures, whether it's the Heritage Foundation or somebody else, measures year by year of a some degree of democracy or spectrum on a non-democratic to fully democratic uh, typology for, for each country in the world. Uh, institutions of the rule of law, there are institutional measures that are quantitative. And then you can define types of political regime on the spectrum of democratic to, uh, to autocratic. Well, when you got so much, how do you handle this? Uh, this was one of my biggest fears when I started doing this uh, work of going back and trying to find, figure out what happened. But uh, I won't convince everybody, but I was pleased to find that the EBRD measure of uh, trade, a uh, transition progress indicator, uh, turns out statistically to be an excellent proxy because it moves much the same way as all sorts of other measures that you wa might want to measure. It's a judgmental measure. Uh, it is a bunch of experts every year saying where on that scale from 1 to 4.3, I have no idea why they chose 4.3, but that's the most, uh, shall we say, liberal market economy you can have in the world. Uh, every year some experts would give values for eight different sub-indices, and then uh, uh, they say don't do an average. The World Bank says don't do averages of what they do. The World Bank does averages of what they do. The, T the EBRD does averages of, of these sub-indices. I did averages of these sub-indices. So what I will show you is an average of their eight different indices of uh, market liberalization. And it turns out to have a strong statistical correlation with other outcome measures, which is what I want to show you. In the uh, uh, slideshow itself, there's a couple of other tables on uh, performance, GDP growth, and so on, but I won't talk about it. First, I want to take the EBRD transition indicator and quickly go through 27 countries that are post-communist countries. I chose the title post-communist in order to avoid the immediate criticism of experts in the field, just but you didn't talk about China, but post-communist. I have an economist reason for saying China's model does not apply, but there's this other reason. This is just essentially the European, Eurasian, Central Asian group of countries, uh, which there are now 27. There may be 28 as soon as Kosovo becomes independent. Uh, anyway, for these countries, the tr transition progress indicator in the year 2004 allowed me to group them in a way that has double meaning. First, you have all of Central Europe, Hungary, Czechoslo Czech Republic, Poland, Slovakia, Croatia, and uh, Slovenia in this first group. Then you have the three Baltic countries. Then you have Southeast Europe, Bulgaria, Romania, Macedonia, Albania, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Serbia, Montenegro, 
Oh, actually, we already have 28, so we're going to have 29 with Kosovo. Uh, in the next group, and then all the rest of them are CIS countries, Commonwealth of Independent States. Those two neatly fall into two groups, more or less neatly. Uh, easier to describe the tail end. These are the laggard or virtually non-reformist three states of Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and Belarus, where the degree of progress from a Soviet-style economy is absolutely minimal. Whereas the rest of these CIS countries, all the others, Russia, Ukraine, uh, Armenia, etc., Kyrgyz Republic, uh, are countries that have done a considerable amount of reforming, a lot of privatization, a lot of uh, liberalization, at least partial, and a lot of institutional legal change and so on and so forth, a lot of opening up of trade, which you don't get in Belarus and, uh, and, and Uzbekistan. Uh, what you see, first of all, is that you get a pretty neat grouping into five groups of countries. Central Europe, Baltics, Southeast Europe, mild reform CIS countries, or moderate reformers in the CIS, and limited reformers. And I use these groups henceforth in my study to try to see for group by group whether other sorts of events in transition conform to this hierarchy of Central Europe, Baltic, Southeast Europe, CIS moderate reform, CIS limited reform. This is an example of economic recovery. Uh, you get a rough grouping that falls, uh, you get a, a rough ranking that falls uh, more or less the same way, especially if you make some adjustments to the official statistics. I'm not going to go into, except maybe in question period, why the official statistics simply are not acceptable, but let me give you one fundamental reason, and I'll blame the EBRD, they're being too political. When they have a table every single year in their transition report, which shows GDP since 1989 to the present day, and then they have it in index form with 1989 being 100. That clearly says the benchmark is 89. How bad did GDP perform since 89? That tells you. It doesn't tell you how bad GDP performed since transition began, because very few countries began transition in 1989. Poland is perhaps the sole exception where serious transition began as early as 89. All of the other countries delayed the beginning of their transition at least a year, two, if not four or five. You make just a little bit of adjustment to change the benchmark to when the process of reforming the economy began, and you don't see nearly as much of a decline in GDP as is taunted by those... Uh, like a Canadian uh, colleague of mine who won the Nobel Prize uh, recently. He worries, he worries mostly about single currency, uh, but Bob Mundell is a great exponent of the fact that this is the greatest depression since the 1930s. I think Bob Mundell is wrong because he's using this 1989 as a benchmark. Anyway, financial stability, FDI per capita, there are tables I won't go to. I want to make the point that the transition progress indicator correlates statistically very well with two important non-economic indicators of progress in transition. The first is democratization. The statistical correlation, I'm not sure how you, whether you can read it or not, but we've got 27 countries 
in which we do a simple regression of an index of constitutional liberalism, media freedom, the degree of openness of elections, and so on, and the ABRD transition progress indicator, you get a pretty high statistical correlation for such a small sample. Uh, I'll come back to the implication of this because it has to do with the Przeworski hypothesis. And then uh, human development indicators. A lot of the criticism of rapid economic reform comes from the concern, well-placed, absolutely well-placed concern that it's going to cause social pain and that, therefore, one should not go quickly. Well, uh, if you look at GDP growth, this uh, critics will say, yeah, yeah, but that doesn't measure social impact. All right, let's go to the source for social well-being. What's that? The United Nations Development Program Annual Human Development Report, which has a big table at the back called the Human Development Index, composed of various uh, uh, social indicators, life expectancy, health, access to safe water, uh, rights of uh, women, and so on and so forth. What do you see happen to the Human Development Indicator over time between 1990 and 10, well, 11, 12 years later, uh, as you go across the group of more quickly reforming and more slowly reforming countries? First of all, you see that in Central Europe, there was really in the first over five-year period, I didn't measure the first year, there may have been a different trend, but there was no decline in the human development indicator at all. And by 2001, they were back on the trajectory of moving forward with the rest of the world. In the Baltics, there was a sharp decline for five years, but they recuperated that in the next seven and surpassed the original Soviet period 1990 value of HDI. Uh, in Southeast Europe, you get much the same performance as in uh, the Baltics. The place where you see social pain being the greatest is in the CIS moderate reformers. Greater than, there's some doubts about the measures for Belarus and so on, but let's Let's take them at face value. Greater than in the CIS countries with limited reform. What does that tell you? It tells me, if you take the whole package together, that if you don't reform at all, you're not going to cause much social pain. Okay? But no pain, no gain. You haven't moved forward. Uh, so you're an example for not moving, not an example for how to move. If you reform quickly, you overcome the pain more quickly and you move into an upward trajectory more quickly. If you delay reform, which is what the CISM group is all about, long delays in starting reform, and very slow and partial reforms, or in the case of the mis, uh, misnamed uh, Big Bang example of Russia, it wasn't the Big Bang. It was an aborted Big Bang, which lasted for six and a half, seven months. Uh, in the case of Russia, if you, if you don't put these things in fully in sufficiently quick time, if you have partial reform, delayed, partial, slow reform, is what causes the greatest social pain. It, these are not IMF World Bank statistics. These are the statistics from the school of thought that most sharply criticizes the economists, from the United Nations sources which, by the way, don't use these statistics to come to the same conclusions. 
on the disaster of the greatest disaster since the depression that was caused in poverty, uh, the 1998 report of the United Nations Development Program uh, presents these statistics but doesn't draw the conclusion that they ought to draw. They say this is terrible. Huge amount of poverty, maldistribution of income, and so forth. All right, let me uh, finish off on the outcomes by talking about regime types. I think you can categorize the 27 countries, roughly speaking, I'm not a political scientist, so I'm not putting a lot of weight on this, into four groups now. One is we have societies that tend to be pretty much on the liberal end of the spectrum uh, with what I like to think of as capitalism for all. Everybody has a chance to be a capitalist. Open markets. And this includes Central Europe. This includes the Baltics. And marginally now we can think of including countries like Bulgaria, Croatia, and Romania in that group. We still have a group of countries where the direction of the polity is undetermined in Southeast Europe. We have Macedonia. We have, uh, of course, uh, Kosovo as, as a non-sovereign entity, but an entity. We have uh, Serbia, Montenegro. We have Albania. These are on the margin. We have oligarch societies, which includes not all, but a large proportion of the CISM group the CIS countries with moderate reforms. Of course, most obviously in Ukraine, Russia, uh, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, uh, less so in some of the other countries, but societies in which the state has been captured by uh, a small number of vested interests. And we have the unreformed polities that have barely moved from being social, uh, excuse me, uh, Soviet-style uh, economies and polities. Uh, a cute little diagram, a cute little, uh, if you will, table, which you can look at on the website. I won't spend a lot of time on it. Uh, that the concentration of billionaires could be thought of as a quantitative indicator of oligarchy. Uh, and not surprisingly, Russia tops the list in proportional terms. The, the proportion is, has not been formed here. I really should have done that. It's the percent of billionaires over the percent of world GDP. Last, second to last column over the last column. It's much higher in Russia than it is uh, anywhere else. In the U.S., it's not much over one. Uh, surprisingly, the uh, welfare state economies of Sweden and Canada have a lot of billionaires. Um, the 2006 numbers for Forbes, by the way, give Russia even more, and Ukraine is now up to seven billionaires. So the concentration for Ukraine suddenly becomes more like Russia. Uh, all right. Uh, I don't mean that to be unserious, neither do I mean it to be serious. I mean, it's, it's only a, a, a tip of the iceberg what the number of billionaires is. Lots of countries have lots of billionaires. A couple of preliminary conclusions on the outcome related to the early debates. First, there's a wide divergence of outcomes. There was no one single outcome by any means. Uh, secondly, you do get countries which you can say that you now have real open markets with capitalism and competitive market economies, open economies. And then you have another group of countries in which you have non-competitive markets. You have markets. How Russia Became a Market Economy, a uh, title of a book by my good friend Anders Osland, uh, is absolutely correct. It did become a market economy, but it's a non-competitive market, which is different from a competitive and liberal market. Uh, the Przeworski hypothesis uh, 
is not confirmed by the facts because in the end, for reasons I won't go into, I discuss it in the book, in the end, market liberality and political uh, liberality are complements rather than trade-offs. Certainly this was the case in the post-communist world. I am not a political scientist. I don't really know very well the literature of uh, political science on the relationship of democracy and markets, uh, going back to Huntington and, uh, and others. Uh, but in the post-communist world, it is clearly a positive correlation. And last preliminary conclusion, the gradualist strategy for easing social costs is not confirmed by outcomes 15 years later. On the contrary, the more rapid the reforms, the lower were social costs, and the earlier they were overcome. Why these divergent outcomes was the next question I asked. Uh, and I'll, I'll try to go more quickly if we, if we need to uh, here. Why divergent outcomes? There, was, uh, there are 27 different stories you can tell. So one approach to this study of this is to do a very good, thorough study of a particular country. And there are many of those, and I relied on, on many of those. Uh, there are, uh, for Poland, uh, e, 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 just in English, never mind what there may be in Polish, there are a good handful of studies by key players like uh, Grzegorz Kolodko and uh, Leszek Balcerowicz, uh, manuscript-length uh, uh, dis- discussions of what happened. Uh, The problem I had with that approach was that 27 different stories make it difficult to see the forest for the trees. And I wanted to see whether there were some minimal set of main driving forces that go some way, a considerable way, to explain the differences in outcome. And what I came up with, I think you'd have to call a political economy model, and I've got uh, an effort, probably mistaken, uh, but an effort to, to uh, in an appendix of one of my chapters of a mathematical version thereof, uh, three main factors correlate together or work together to determine whether a country would go in this direction or that direction, more successful, less successful. First, how long were the reforms debated and delayed at the beginning? Secondly, how powerful were the vested interests that were there Uh, early on or even before the start to take advantage of any rent-seeking opportunities. And third, how important was reform discipline coming from the outside? External conditionality of international club memberships like the uh, EU or the uh, Bretton Woods institutions or the WTO, etc. I probably won't have time to get into the details, so let me give you the conclusion. The EU was by far, or EU membership was by far the most important of any outside disciplining uh, uh, sort of uh, efforts that contributed to uh, good movement in reform. The navigation model that I have, I will go to this vicious circle diagram to explain it. Um, I call it a navigation model because the oligarchs I call pirates and the debate about not, ha- not knowing where to go, uncharted waters. Well, uh, this is the vicious circle, and there's a uh, virtuous circle, the opposite of this. If you start with the point here, suppose the reforms are delayed for good reason or bad. The longer you delay a reform, the greater the opportunities for rent-seeking Uh, and possible revival of an old elite or development of a new elite. Look, 
if you have privatization alone, you already can start to have vested interests look for rent opportunities. And privatization actually began in 87, 88 in Russia and earlier in other countries. Uh, but you don't have liberalization, you don't have competitive laws and regulations and so forth. If you have these delays for a long time and they're big enough, the rent-seeking opportunities pro provide the possibility for development of high concentrations of capital ownership, the oligarchy development, and the capture of the state for policy self-interest. And, of course, the entrenched elite, the new elite, uh, economic elite, is not in favor of competition. They prefer the status quo. They prefer non-transparent procedures. Uh, they prefer to avoid the discipline of EU membership because the one thing that EU membership brings is not only continual momentum forward, but an increasing degree of openness and transparency, according to the Acquis uh, Communautaire uh, 32 chapters. This makes it more difficult for small and medium enterprises, for new entrants. They continue to face difficulties while the, uh, the big entities uh, uh, have their way. You also, therefore, have weak rule of law, weak support for EU membership, and this going outside the loop has an effect on Brussels. Brussels doesn't just simply say, oh, we're going to offer EU membership to this candidate, but not to that one. That depends a little bit on how they read the preparedness of different candidates to go through this 10, 15-year process of doing all these changes. That's a lot of politics in it as well. But if they read that uh, Ukraine, Moldova are not going in the direction that's desirable and they themselves have a, a, a power elite that doesn't want it, they're not going to offer membership automatically. Uh, the World Bank has done the State Capture Index, uh, and I have used it to do a little bit of simple econometrics that the higher the degree of state capture in 1990, sorry, the, the longer the delay in beginning the first step in economic transformation, that is stabilization of the hyperinflation, uh, and I measured by the number of months it takes to reach 5% per month inflation, the longer it takes to start, the longer the delay in stabilization, the higher the state capture index. Again, with a reasonably decent uh, set of correlations and significance for the uh, statistics. Uh, similarly, the larger, the bigger the first step in reforms, which is transition progress indicator after four years from the start, uh, the lower the degree of state capture. So if you delay stabilization, delay reform, state capture will be higher. If you move quickly, state capture will be lower, which is an important part of the hypothesis of the model. This is just a table where both variables are uh, regressed. Let me then turn finally to the last point about what are the prospects for what are the now captured states. The de old debate about gradualism versus Big Bang is nice historically to uh, write about and try to uh, conclude. But I, it is history, because everybody's gone too far with the exception of three, and that's not important enough. In the future, the new important debate, and this is where the Aron article uh, was relevant, is, is the transition inevitably going to continue once it started, or is the transition frozen? The transition inevitable argument, uh, 
and it's not fair to draw straw men, but approximately in some of the writings of Andre Schleifer, of Osland, and so on, uh, you get these arguments based on the Coase theorem that if there's a, uh, in a market, there's a demand for anything, including institutions, they will generate a supply. Yesterday's thief is tomorrow's staunchest defender of property rights, uh, means that once a person becomes a capitalist, a big capitalist especially, they will want to have secure property rights for their property. They will therefore demand that the government impose property rights institutions. Uh-uh, not so fast. That certainly is not the history of Latin America as I understand it, or of entrenched elites uh, as the uh, Journal of Economic Literature article of Moore Cattell uh, last year described. The, there is a counter-argument, and it has been best and most rigorously defined in mathematical models by Polishchuk and Savatey of 2004 and Son in 2003, which says, wait a minute, uh, these entrenched elites or vested interests or oligarchs, they're maximizing profits, right, or rents. How do you maximize them? Well, there are many different ways. One way is to secure your property rights. The other way is to buy your property rights non-transparently, uh, sometimes transparently because you have an army of protectors and, and hired guns, literally, uh, non-transparently from the government. They don't touch you. They touch the small, the medium-sized guys. Uh, and you continue to use your influence on the government to make sure that the kind of government that is in place, and that is the meaning of state capture, is favorable to you, and the kind of policies they enforce or put in place are most favorable to your profits. So, in fact, you can argue that entrenched elites will delay and freeze the transition process. Uh, it's too early to tell, but a very quick and dirty econometric estimate of this is in this chart, that state capture leads to frozen transition. That if I look at the degree of state capture in 99, and I look five years later at how far countries have gone in transition progress indicator, I get this negative relationship. In other words, the higher the degree of state capture, the less future progress was in transition. I think we will uh, finish uh, this at this point. Uh, there may be some questions about, no, where is this? Okay. There may be some questions that I wanted to, the only other thing I wanted to raise, but maybe in question period is, what can you do? Is there anything that you can do to overcome this captured state situation? Thank you. Thank you. Well, Olaf, thank you so very much for that presentation. It was really um, comprehensive and uh, very interesting. I'm sure there will be time for questions. But before we go to question and answer session, I am uh, delighted to welcome to the Cato Institute the uh, ambassador of the Polish Republic, uh, Janusz Reiter. Uh, Mr. Reiter is a diplomat and a foreign policy expert, as well as a political writer, who was born in 1952 in Kościernica, Poland. I probably mispronounced it, but um, that's Polish for you. Uh, he has graduated in 1976 from uh, Warsaw University in German philology, which uh, I wonder if... Uh, uh, was any useful when he then later became uh, the Polish ambassador to uh, the Federal Republic of Germany. But uh, he has, um, um, in the years between 1984 and 89, he was a commenta commentator for the independent weekly Przeglad Katolicki, and uh, from 1990 to 1985, 
Um, as, as I said, he was uh, the ambassador to, to Germany. He later um, uh, became president of the Center for International Relations in uh, Poland. Uh, the ambassador um, has kindly agreed to uh, come and join us, and uh, please uh, let me welcome into the Cato Institute. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me to speak about this book. Let me say that uh, I really believe the book offers a lot of, of valuable insights. And uh, my first reaction was, if we only had had this book back in 1989-1990, we could have done uh, a much better job. But we did not. Because it's obvious... Uh, the hardest things are predictions, particularly about the future. And this is why there were so many, uh, so many failed attempts to write about uh, transformation in the early 90s. And so many books whose authors would be happy to forget about the books and to make them uh, forgotten. I think this is a book that really uh, is based on... Uh, reliable data, and a book that uh, doesn't have uh, false aspirations, a book that provides a lot of, as I said, a lot of, a lot of insights, a book that provides uh, a solid, reliable analysis. Let me also say, make uh, at the beginning a remark on IMF, the World Bank, and other institutional, uh, international institutions uh, uh, the role they played in Central and Eastern Europe and in other regions. Because the, I think it's uh, interesting to know that uh, the perception of the IMF and the World Bank, for example, in Poland and in Central Europe, was very different uh, from this in other countries. Also, very different from, for example, for uh, uh, Russia or uh, Ukraine. Uh, I think the reason was that the IMF and the World Bank found in Central Europe pretty well-prepared elites who took the responsibility for their countries. They found some well-prepared, well-skilled young professionals, but not only that. There were political elites who took the responsibility for the reform process. As an example... The Polish Prime Minister elected in September 1989, Tadeusz Mazowiecki, was a political leader. He didn't know very much about economy, but he had a sense of what uh, should have been done. And he was the one who uh, hired Leszek Balcerowicz, who became then a political leader and an expert on uh, market economy. And that was an ideal uh, composition. Uh, and there was no doubt that uh, it was these two people, Mazowiecki and Balcerowicz, who took the responsibility for the outcome uh, of the reform, and not the World Bank, and not the IMF, and not the other advisors from, from the uh, Western countries. 
they, I mean, the leaders in the Central European countries, they took, they absorbed the expertise from the, uh, in the from the international institutions, and they transformed it into policy for their countries. And finally, as I said, they took responsibility for the outcome of the process. So there was no clash between the advisors, between the uh, international institutions and uh, an unprepared society with the results which led then in, uh, in, in other cases uh, to blaming IMF and the World Bank uh, and the Western experts on the failures of the reforms. The failures were caused by the elites uh, in, in the countries and not by the, by the international uh, experts. And uh, the stronger the national elite was, the less likely was a clash between the Western experts and, and the local communities. Uh, and uh, um, well, then, after the initial period of a few years, uh, the IMF and the World Bank were replaced in, in their fu function as a provider of, uh, of navigation paradigm, as Mr. Havrelation says, by the European Union that uh, did then an excellent job uh, and had much more influence than the uh, financial institutions because uh, it had much more incentives than the IMF or the World Bank. Um, let me add that uh, the existence of, uh, of uh, strong elites was a conditio sine qua non for the uh, success of the reform process. Uh, there was a certain democracy paradox in these countries, as I formulated. Uh, democracy was a widely accepted idea. There was no doubt about it in Central Europe, uh, also maybe at the beginning in Eastern Europe. But the democratic mechanisms and structures were extremely weak. Uh, in the communist time, the dominant factor uh, of the social certification was the distance towards the power and not social differences. Uh, the economic differences were of minor importance. At the starting point uh, in 1989-1990, there were no uh, well-formed interest groups in the Central and Eastern European countries. And there was n little awareness of specific interests of the various interest groups. Uh, the Polish Solidarity was a wide movement of 10 million people. So one could uh, uh, wonder, could 10 million people have equal interests in a free democratic society? Uh, not necessarily, but uh, this movement was formed by the old divisions of the communist time, and that was what brought 10 million people together, and not, uh, and not the awareness of uh, shared interests in a free and democratic uh, uh, society. Um, the weakness of the democratic society uh, in a certain sense, that may sound cynical, but it is not cynical, offered a unique opportunity uh, 
to the reformers in in these countries and if they if they used the momentum if the if they used the opportunity uh, as they did in Poland and in other countries of central europe uh, they could make an, a huge progress and that was exactly the case in in, uh, in Poland plus in Poland there was uh, another element uh, the a communist system collapsed in an unprecedented way. So there was no room for any nostalgia. Um, uh, and another element that was, as I, as I believe, important for all post-communist countries in Central Europe was that uh, maybe for the first time in the modern history, there was no East-West choice for these countries. Because the East represented by Russia, had nothing to offer. So uh, um, uh, Mr. Havlishin was speaking about the expectations back in 1989, 1990. The expectations were, were on, the, on the one hand, very vague. People wanted to be like in Western Europe, like the European Union. But on the other hand, the expectations were very concrete. People wanted to escape the former Eastern Bloc. There was a negative uh, point of reference that was Russia, with uh, the unprecedented level of uh, decline in well, economic and social decline, and also loss of political authority and political well uh, attractiveness. Um, this, that made the that that that, that made uh, particularly in the Polish case uh, the choice between the gradualist concept and the big bang concept. Well, actually, a very a very abstract choice. There was there was in the concrete situation no real uh, choice. The gradual approach uh, was uh, sometimes offered or sometimes supported more as a pretext to avoid reforms or as a pretext uh, um, to um, leave the control over the economy and of the state to the small group of the, of the so-called nomenclatura. And let me say that without going in, uh, into details, uh, uh, the problem of the so-called nomenclatura, I will then make another uh, remark on that, uh, was faced in all countries uh, and uh, there were differences in how the problem was addressed but this is uh, what, I'm, what I'd like to return to a little uh, later um, let me just mention here that paradoxically in Central Europe both the post-communist elites and their critics were in favor of joining the EU, of EU accession, for different reasons. Because for the former uh, communist elite, joining the EU uh, was uh, the hope to live in a, in a safe political environment. They hoped the EU to protect them, so to speak, against the anti-communist uh, um, forces and elites in their countries. And for the uh, critics of the post-communists, the EU uh, was, so to speak, the leverage to break up the structures of the post-communist society and post-communist uh, 
market uh, economy. Uh, so that was the situation. Uh, uh, that was the situation uh, when uh, until. 2004, when 10 new countries joined the European uh, Union. Uh, the European Union uh, played an enormous role in this um, process, and let me say a few words about, uh, about that. Uh, the EU is a meritocratic organization. Uh, it is very successful if it combines the meritocratic approach with a political vision. And sometimes uh, it does. It fails when it relies only on the meritocratic approach and has no political vision. And that happens sometimes uh, too. Uh, the ideal candidates for EU membership, as the EU uh, looks at that, are countries like Norway and Switzerland. But exactly the two countries that, do that don't want to join the European Union. So... Uh, um, if they are, if, if 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 a country is as ideal as the EU wishes it to uh, to be, then it doesn't want to join uh, the European Union. But if it wants to join the European Union, it is far from being ideal. And this is the well, uh, this is the, the dialectic process uh, of of uh, the relationship between the EU and the uh, candidates. Now. Uh, the EU has been very successful in, uh, in, in, in the combination of the meritocratic, meritocratic approach and the political vision for the 10 new countries, even if there were uh, some hard debates on that. Uh, what about Ukraine? I think that uh, Mr. Havrilishan is uh, absolutely right in stating that the European Union has failed to develop the right strategy on Ukraine. Um, even if Ukraine is, that should be admitted, an extremely complicated case. But in this case, the EU relied too much on its meritocratic approach and had, was too little able to develop a political uh, vision. To be fair, I think it is uh, uh, important to add that, the, that Ukraine uh, 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 contrary to that, has relied too much on the political vision and neglected uh, the necessity of, of uh, making the reforms. It has to rely on the EU as a political process and has failed to recognize the nature of the meritocratic process. And that is the, the other uh, contribution to the failure of, uh, to, this, to this grand failure. Um, uh, particularly the pre-orange uh, governments in Ukraine have failed uh, to, do, to make the necessary efforts and that has very negatively affected the, um, uh, the, um, uh, well, the way how the Ukraine was perceived uh, in Western Europe, in the European Union. However, uh, where the European Union has failed was the response to the Orange Revolution, uh, that, that was certainly a failure, uh, even if the Orange Revolution w was not able to uh, form the country as deeply as one could wish. The Orange Revolution showed that Ukraine was a country with uh, genuinely 
pro-European inclinations. And these inclinations should have been in, uh, encouraged and supported by the European Union. The European neighborhood policy is only an ersatz for such a vision. It is only an ersatz because there can be no common policy uh, towards such so, so different countries as uh, Morocco, Egypt, Moldova and Ukraine. Unless the, the, the strategy is to keep all of these countries out. And this is exactly the suspicion that uh, people in Ukraine have, that the strategy is to keep Ukraine uh, out. Uh, let, me, let me at the end add uh, mm, that, the, that certainly the problem of the oligarchic structure is a problem of Russia, Ukraine, and the post-Soviet uh, space. But there is a problem of the post-communist elites in the uh, successful Central European countries, and this problem is now again being discussed more than in the uh, previous uh, years. Paradoxically, I cannot uh, go uh, now into details. Finally, uh, is the a transformation in the Central European countries uh, uh, completed, or is it still an unfinished business? I believe very much that the transformation is completed, which doesn't mean that there is no need for reforms. However, there is a need for reforms also in Western Europe. Uh, but this is a, a different sort of reforms that we need today than the reforms that uh, were done in the past. Uh, and to return to Central Europe, I think the time of adaptation is over. Now it's a time for making choices. The time of adaptation was the time of taking over the acquis communautaire. Uh, and the, the situation was very simple. It was a take-it-or-leave situation. Uh, we had to accept the acquis or we would uh, not be accepted as uh, candidates for EU membership. Today, uh, the new members of the EU have to make their own choices, knowing that there is no European model that offers simple answers to uh, their problems. There are different models. There is a different, different Scandinavian model. There is a different uh, Anglo-Saxon model in the UK. There is another model in, uh, in uh, uh, France and Germany, even if Germany maybe should be, uh, should be, should be separated from France. Uh, uh, so it's much more difficult to make the choices uh, in today's environment than, uh, than uh, at the beginning of uh, this uh, um, process. Uh, if what makes me confident for this group of countries is that uh, after 16 or 17 years of reforms, uh, unlike in Western Europe, people in these countries know that changes are not an exception, but the norm. And maybe this is why they might be pretty well prepared for further, for additional changes, means reforms. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador. We will move straight away to question and answer session. Uh, we only have the Ambassador for the next five minutes, so if there are questions directly or, or directed to him, uh, let, let, us, let us take those first.
Anybody questions for the Polish uh, ambassador? Uh, right in the back, do I see a question? No. Yes? Okay. Um, I was wondering, uh, you mentioned that further reforms were really uh, based upon the need for Western Europe to reform. And following up on that a little bit, I wondered if you had noticed in any of the Western European countries, if they had taken anything from the example of the former communist countries in terms of things that they should not be doing, has there been any, have there been any lessons learned from the communist countries for the Western European countries in terms of social policy, social welfare, anything like that? Well, uh, let me first say that uh, uh, this, the Central European countries are uh, advocating liberal reforms in the European Union. They have a genuine inter interest uh, in the reforms, uh, in, in, in liberal reforms of the European Union. At least now, it may change. Uh, they may become um, status quo oriented in, in the future. To give you an example, uh, the common agricultural policy. Poland today, uh, uh, one of the biggest uh, agriculturists in the European Union, is uh, interested in a deep reform of the agricultural policy. Why? Well, because Poland is not fully involved in uh, the CAP. Once it is fully involved in the CAP, I wonder whether it will be interested in uh, promoting reforms. Um, it's uh, that simple. I mean, there the, 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 the might be, there will be uh, politicians and, and economists who will who will advocate such reforms, but there will be such a strong, powerful uh, lobby of farmers uh, that will be interested in maintaining status quo. And then, then I think uh, it might be too late. So now, um, if the ones in the old EU who are really interested in uh, reforming the CAP, uh, if they mean it seriously, they should uh, try to, to organize a a, a, a reform uh, front in the EU, including the new countries, particularly in this case Poland. Another example, the um, Polish uh, pension reforms, a reform that was, uh, that was done uh, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, has, uh, is, a, is a success story. And uh, I know it has been studied in uh, some Western European countries. I don't know whether that, w uh, uh, whether that has been used in these countries uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, uh, as, an, as a useful example. I don't know. I guess, but this is only a speculation, I guess that sh there are some mental problems uh, because uh, mm, uh, while uh, the East knows that it can learn a lot from the West, the West uh, need some time to realize that it also can learn from the East sometimes. So there is a, an East-West uh, mm, uh, asymmetry in uh, the European Union. Could one say old Europe versus new Europe? Well, yes, this is a political slogan and this is why I don't uh, use it. Uh, well, actually, things are more complicated, also particularly in, in the economy. Also, uh, politically, things are much more uh, complicated. One more question for the ambassador, right there. 
Um, you mentioned uh, the European neighborhood policy and that that is failing and essentially Europe has no strategy for uh, the extended larger Eastern Europe. And uh, we've heard here there's Georgia, there's Ukraine, there's Russia, all uh, in the middle of transition or failing or not. What should the European Union do? What must the European Union do to offer an incentive for these countries to pursue market reforms if they cannot offer membership like they did to Poland or the Czech Republic? Well, yeah. Um, as I said, the the problem with, with uh, the problem with the EU is that uh, it is uh, successful if it can offer uh, uh, the, mem- the incentive of membership, but it cannot offer the incentive of membership uh, to the rest of the world. Um, that doesn't work. So the problem is what to do with uh, other countries that cannot be included, that cannot be taken into the European uh, Union. But uh, mm, first, there are countries that can be uh, and should be um, taken into the European Union. One day, I believe that Ukraine is such a country. And second, uh, the problem is uh, that the European Union, first, um, cannot be forever a civilian power only and be proud, so to speak, of being a civilian power only with very little hard power. It needs hard power. Second, the European Union uh, can only be successful in, uh, in this strategy towards such regions if it, uh, if it uh, works together with the United States. Uh, um, the former Soviet Union is not a playground for a competition between uh, the EU and the US. Uh, this is an ideal uh, place, an ideal uh, uh, um, place for a cooperation between the EU and the Europe and, and the US, for a lot of reasons that I cannot analyze uh, now. Uh, and there are some elements of good cooperation, um, and I believe very much that this is uh, really where uh, we need a community of. We need. Uh, a community of free countries uh, sponsored, so to speak, by the U.S. and by the, mm, the European Union. Th- that uh, requires a little more uh, modest approach on the EU side, uh, a little more realistic approach. I think that the chance is pretty good that the European Union will become more realistic. I think I think it has become more realistic. It has become more realistic after uh, the uh, experiences uh, with the uh, war in Iraq. Um, uh, I don't want I don't want to discuss uh, who was right, who was wrong. But the EU uh, has recognized that it has failed to offer a, um, an alternative strategy. Um, and this is why the European Union means uh, the, some leading countries of the European Union today are much more realistic in uh, uh, their analysis of the international situation. Okay, let's open it up. Um, more questions to come. Yes, sir. Right in front. I'm Bob Hershey. I'm a consultant. Could you comment on the progress of energy reform in these countries? 
it's all yours now. It's all yours. Yes. Uh, roughly speaking, uh, the extent to which energy uh, systems have been reformed, both in terms of uh, price uh, and in terms of uh, ownership and regulation and so forth, it is more or less ranked the same way that general progress in transition. I mean, it is uh, about as uh, as complete a set of reforms as you can uh, imagine in Central Europe, and it's still a long way in the Central Asian republics and Russia and Ukraine, you know, huge energy subsidies. There's a reason for energy reform being delayed even longer than others. Uh, if, if you talk about incomplete price liberalization or reform in general liberalization, leaving open rent-seeking opportunities, I mean, the king of rent-seeking opportunities is the energy sector in that part of the world, at least that has been. Uh, just a little uh, twist on this. Um, there are a couple of countries who, uh, when they joined the Western European community called the European Union, had to deliberalize their energy policy a little bit. Um, uh, degree of liberalization of imports and, uh, and unregulated provision of energy and so forth was too much for the, in Estonia, was too much for the, uh, the EU regulations. Uh, so there's actually some, if you talk about some kind of a spectrum or index of liberality, there was some movement back to slightly less liberal regimes, not only in energy but in other um, areas for countries like Estonia and Latvia upon joining the European Union. More questions? The lady in front. Linda Greenberg, Brinkman Publishing. Uh, Mr. Chiefy, I had a question for you in terms of the um, handout. Uh, in talking about all the things that have gone up, uh, th the last sentence in the next to last paragraph, the integrity of the legal system and protection of private property rights, however, had declined from 1995 to 2004. And I was curious as to how the legal rights would go down in terms of freedom where all the other things were going up. Oh, okay. Uh, you are referring to the Tech Central Station article? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. You um, said you need a legal basis in order to make sure that everything else was... Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a paradox. I, I really... Uh, do, I have a, do I have a good explanation for it? Basically, what I did was to look at the Economic Freedom of the World Report, which is published by the Fraser Institute. And uh, the Fraser Institute looks at uh, five different... Uh, aspects of economic freedom. One of them is access to sound money, which is to say uh, inflation. The other one is uh, the size of government, how much the government is spending. Third is the freedom uh, to, um, to trade. Fourth is uh, the burden of regulation. And the fifth is the rule of law. In all of those in the past decade, that is to say between 95 and 2004, Central European countries, and by them, um, Central European countries, I mean uh, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, and Slovakia, have improved with the exception of the fifth, uh, where there has been a, an increase, particularly in corruption. And uh, in fact, uh, uh, the Fraser Index is highly correlated with uh, CPI, that is to say, Corruption Perception Index, published by uh, Transparency International, which also found a declining trend when it comes to prevalence or perception of corruption in Central Europe. Now, the hypothesis, which I'm trying to address in a 
forthcoming Cato paper is that uh, this is because uh, the transition in Central Europe uh, is not finished, that um, um, the the number of uh, licensing procedures and, uh, and, and intervening steps that, are, that, that present an opportunity for uh, bureaucracies in Central Europe, uh, for bureaucrats to misuse public office for private gain, are still there, and consequently uh, corruption cor corruption persists. In some cases, it got worse. Uh, next month, I will have a paper on the subject, and hopefully I will be able to explain in greater detail. Um, okay, we have one more question, so why don't we take a question over there, sir? Just a second. In terms of inclusionary capitalism, capitalism for everyone. Uh, and you mentioned that there were no models that existed prior to the collapse of the Soviet uh, Union. But, but are you aware of the writings of Lewis Kelso, Mortimer Adler, and the Capitalist Manifesto, and the New Capitalists? And there are many writings uh, in Kelso's binary economics. You can go to his website, KelsoInstitute.org. But uh, there you have a model which sustains free markets. As a matter of fact, builds a political constituency for a free market system, private property and limited government. But it looks at the barriers to ownership. In other words, even if you look at the American economy, which you could say has about as broad a base of capital ownership as any, any country, uh, the top uh, 1% own about 50% of all corporate equity. L let's go to the question very quickly so that we can get maybe another one in. Mm -hmm. or, or not. Uh, simple, simple answer. The, uh, I am not familiar with the Capitalist Manifesto, uh, but I, I don't, I think I want to correct in a, perhaps any misimpression. I am not one of those who argue that the problem at the beginning was that there were no models. In fact, I think that that was a red herring. Uh, at a, some academics uh, believed it for uh, with good motivation, but a lot of uh, uh, pr previous elite members, as the ambassador said, believed it, so didn't believe it, but uh, for uh, other motivations simply wanted to postpone reform. I think the issue was... And it wasn't, the debate wasn't actually whether there is a model or not. The debate was a little finer than that. Because the debate was, first of all, uh, we know what capitalism looks like because there's lots of it, uh, lots of examples in the world. We don't know how to go from socialism to capitalism. So it was a debate about the mechanics of, of the dynamics of the movement from one model to another. Uh, and then the other part of the debate was even finer than that, and this was the Big Bang versus gradualism. Uh, what is the optimal way of going there, quickly or slowly? But here, let me pick up on what the ambassador uh, said, uh, which, which I agree fully, that the gradualist notion was very often a pretext for old elites to avoid reform. Uh, lots of academics have written about that, and uh, it would be uh, to blame them for that would be like blaming, uh, if you were, say, anti-nuclear uh, in your Weltanschauung, it would be like blaming Einstein for uh, there being nuclear power and nuclear bombs. It's not their fault, except maybe that they were a little bit, shall we say, uh, naive about how the local uh, elites and traditional 
uh, elites would uh, would use this. They used it and abused it. And I have an I, I have a test of this in my book, which basically uses quantitative indicators of different types of reform, price liberalization or market liberalization type of reforms, uh, and institutional reforms. If anybody who moved slowly was seriously following the academic recommendations of gradualist academics, they should have moved slowly on liberalization but moved fast on institutions. Guess what? They didn't. Not only that, those who moved fast on economic liberalization were also the ones who moved fast on institutional reform. Thank, thank you so much. Um, I would once again urge you all who are interested in the subject matter to buy Divergent Paths. And uh, also I want to tell you that uh, the presentation of Dr. Havrilishin will be on uh, Cato's Project on Global Economic Liberty website for you to check out later. Uh, now let me invite you upstairs for refreshments. And in the meantime, uh, let me thank Oleg for a wonderful presentation. Thank you.